morning, church family. Trust you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 1 already. We're going to look at verses 1 to 8 this morning. As we turn our hearts to God's Word, let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you that at this moment we are keenly aware that we do not have to invite your Holy Spirit here. You're already here. You're at work. We just pause to acknowledge that and to glory in it. That you're the God that's with us and for us. You're right here, right now. We ask and pray that you would do what only you can do, that is to lead us to all truth by your Spirit as we turn our hearts to your Word. Illumine your Word to us this morning in such a way that we would love and trust Jesus all the more. That we would see the entire world through that lens, that it's a world that, God, you so loved that you gave your only son, that all who believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And that we would shoulder our commission as your witnesses. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Bible's open, Acts chapter 1. We are starting in Acts chapter 1, verse 1 today. And we are going to finish in Acts chapter 28, sometime before Jesus returns. This is the very first time that I've ever preached all the way through the book of Acts in one go. You know, over the years, we have looked at different moments in the narrative account in Acts, but this is going to be the first time that in a comprehensive way we start at the beginning and press on all the way through to the end. So I'm really excited. Are you guys? It also means that you know where you can be reading in your own private devotionals. If you're not already on a Bible reading plan, um, today would be a good day to start with reading Acts chapter 1. And just start reading through Acts as you're able. Read through it, go back and read through it again, and just pray that God would use this book mightily in your life and in our church. Without any setup, I want to jump right into verses 1 to 3. Look at what Luke writes here at the very beginning of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Well, at the very onset or outset of our sermon series through Acts, it's worth pointing out that the author of Acts is Luke, the very same author as the Gospel of Luke. And one way to think about this is not that there's a Gospel of Luke and then there's this book, the Acts of the Apostles, but instead that Luke had one story to tell and it took him two volumes to do it. That's evidenced by the fact that there are so many parallels and similarities between how Luke begins his account in Acts and how he began his gospel. Take a moment and just turn a few pages to the left, back to Luke chapter 1, verse 1. You're going to see these similarities. He's writing both accounts to Theophilus, either a particular person or all who love God and are loved by God in general. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, he writes and says, 
Inasmuch as I have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to me, to us, it seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent, what's his name? Theophilus, the same guy. Verse 4, that you may have a vague notion. <laughs> Is that what he says? Things might be ambiguous. Is that what he says? No, he says that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. Luke writes his account in Acts with a similar introduction that we just read. Because Luke doesn't see these as two separate accounts, but rather one account of one thing. He states his intent clearly. Now we call this book that we're looking at the book of Acts or maybe the Acts of the Apostles. But as I've been preparing for this series and studying through it, it seems to me like it might be more accurate to think about this account the way that Luke did. He didn't have this notion that there were two separate things, you know. The gospel account is what Jesus did and said, and he accomplished some things. And then there's another account where the apostles did and said some other things. That's not how Luke conceived of it. Instead, as we get into this account, it will become clear that Luke's logic goes something like this. Look at verse 3 in Acts chapter 1. Jesus is alive. This same Jesus that you read about throughout my entire gospel account, he's alive, and you can know so with certainty. Jesus, who is now alive, Back then, he began to do and to teach certain things. He was then taken up. But before he was taken up to heaven, he gave commands to his apostles through the Holy Spirit. Commands to do what? Well, to continue on with the very same things that he himself said and did to do, and to teach. Throughout this entire series, we will see that the apostles are just doing that. They're doing. They're teaching. But Luke warns us at the outset, by the way that he introduces this account, that we ought to make no mistake. When we read these narratives through Acts from a human perspective, it may appear as though these are Men and women who are doing things, teaching things. But Luke wants you to know right at the outset that it's something far more profound than that. It's Jesus. Jesus is alive. And he is still doing and teaching the very same things that he did back in the gospel, only now He's doing it through his apostles, through his disciples, through the church, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, friends, we can't put too fine a point on this before we jump into Acts. 
Jesus is alive. If you read the account in Acts and you have not yet anchored that point, you're going to get off in the weeds thinking that these were just some guys back then who did some things and did their very best. Luke begins with this truth that Jesus began to do and to teach in Luke's gospel account. And through this Acts of the Apostles, he now continues to do and to teach. I was thinking and praying about this, and it struck me that there is actually no particular point of application for this truth as we jump into Acts, okay? There's no clear point where I can say to you, therefore, St. George's, do this, or therefore, St. George's, don't do that. The application of this truth as we move into Acts is something different. It's an invitation to change your perspective as you're reading these accounts, It's an invitation to a different lens as you consider your own life as a Christian man or woman, or even as you consider the life and ministry of our local church. It means that if you are a Christian today, then in verse 2, the risen Jesus has commanded you, along with his apostles, by the same Spirit, to continue to do and to teach. And even more so, that by that same Spirit, as you do and teach, it is the risen, alive Jesus who is doing and teaching through you. Jesus is alive. In the Acts of the Apostles, he was working through his disciples. Today, he's working through you by the same Spirit. I don't know about you, but for me, there's something of encouragement to be found in that. Amen? Look, when we consider what this means in Northeast Burlington in 2023, over the past several years as we've been praying, we've identified three key ways that the curse of sin manifests in our community. One is through isolation, another is through busyness, and the third is through meaninglessness. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is the only solution for those three problems that fully satisfies the longings of the human heart. But consider what we're thinking about this morning and how it affects the third one in particular, meaninglessness. If you are a Christian man or woman, this truth that Jesus is alive, that by his spirit, he is still doing and teaching through you, well, it means that your life has been redeemed. It means that you have been saved and rescued from monotony. It means that your life is no longer just marking time as you inch ever closer to the grave and becoming worm food. Your life has meaning. It has purpose. God is alive in Jesus, and he's working through you. 
you are no longer limited by your own natural skills and abilities. You're empowered by the Spirit. You're no longer bound by the groundhog day of the same thing over and over. Your life has meaning and purpose that's eternal. Well, if that is true, if God in Jesus is alive and by his Spirit still at work through you, well, what does that look like? Look at verse 1. I want to drill into this before we move on. Luke makes it very clear in verse 1 that what Jesus did during his earthly ministry was to begin to do and to teach. And so now it is for the apostles, it is for the disciples, it is for the church that the apostles founded with their teaching to continue doing exactly those two things. It means that you and I should do the same things that Jesus did as he's working through us by his Spirit. It means that we should teach the very same things that Jesus did as he himself, the risen Savior, is teaching through us by his Spirit. In a nutshell, it means that the risen Jesus Christ is at work through his people, through you and me, to bring about the very kingdom of God. It, it means that the risen Jesus Christ's work in and through you by the Spirit is such that you would, through your life, move out into the world, exercising and exerting the very rule of God in every sphere of your life. You might be thinking, that's great, R.D., but how do I do that? Well, hang on to that. We're going to get to it in a moment. The how we're going to get to in a moment. Look at verses 4 to 5. And while staying with them, he, the risen Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus instructed these guys and said, all right, listen, before you tear off and try to do all of these works and try to teach others on my behalf in the same way that I did, you got to wait. You need something. You need the Holy Spirit. You might be a Christian this morning and thinking, how exactly does that work? Do I need the Holy Spirit? Do I need the Holy Spirit to witness? Do I need the Holy Spirit to teach? Do I need the Holy Spirit to get into heaven? And my answer is, friend, you need the Holy Spirit to go to Costco. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, you would never be born again. It's the Spirit's work to convict you of your sin and to show you the beauty and the glory of your Savior, to grant you faith and to assure you that you are a son or a daughter of God. That's the Holy Spirit's work. Do I need the Holy Spirit to teach and to do? Well, Jesus sure thought so. 
he said to the disciples, wait in Jerusalem for this promised Holy Spirit. Jesus knew that they could never be effective in doing and teaching until they had received the gift from the Father. So what does that mean for you and for me? You say, R.D., I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian man or woman. I've been born again. I've been born of the Spirit. I bowed my knees to Jesus as Lord. He's caused me to be born again. I'm a Christian. Do I still need to wait? Do I still need the Holy Spirit? And the answer is overwhelmingly clear from Scripture, no. You see, as we move through Luke's gospel and we move into the Acts of the Apostles, we recognize that God was doing something very specific in history and in time. The disciples, at this point in history, they were believers in Jesus. But Jesus had not yet ascended into heaven. He was with them. They needed to wait. They needed to wait for Jesus to ascend to heaven and send the Holy Spirit upon them, empowering them to be witnesses. We're going to get to that in a couple of weeks in chapter 2. But Christian man or woman here today, Jesus has already ascended into heaven. Jesus on earth was God with us. He has now ascended into heaven and he has poured out his Holy Spirit on all who believe. No longer God with you, but God in you, in the person of the Holy Spirit. They needed to wait. We need to go. If you're a Christian man or woman this morning, let me assure you of this. You have the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, Paul's writing to Christians. And he tells them about this spirit that they already have. Every single Christian, every single believer you have the Holy Spirit, he says. And you know what's amazing about that Spirit? Paul says in Romans 8, the Spirit that dwells in you is the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. It's already dwelling in you. The same Spirit that could take a dead corpse and after three days revivify it and bring it back to life, that Spirit's in you. Christian man or woman. Jesus is alive. Paul's thinking in Romans chapter 8 about this, and he's saying Jesus is alive because the Spirit has caused him to be raised from the dead. And he's saying, Christian man or woman, you used to be dead in your trespasses and sins, but the same spirit that raised Christ to new life has caused you to be alive in Christ. The Holy Spirit is in you if you're a Christian. You see, the point in verses 4 to 5 when Jesus is instructing them to wait was not to instruct us that we need to wait for something more. We already have the Spirit. 
Instead, the point of this instruction for us and for our learning was to highlight that every single thing that we do and teach, every single thing that we see throughout the 28 chapters of Acts, the doing and the teaching, is only possible when the risen, alive Jesus ascended into heaven and sent his Holy Spirit upon believers. That's the point. And you have that spirit. Christian man or woman, it's already in you. Say, well, I really don't know, R.D., if I have the Holy Spirit in me. Well, let me tell you about a couple of ways that you can know. If you would say, I put my faith and trust in Jesus, then that alone is an evidence that the Holy Spirit is in you. You couldn't say that on your own. The only way that you can come to that conclusion is if the Holy Spirit of God is causing you to see your sin as an offense against a holy God and causing you to see Jesus as your substitute and your savior. So here's the test. You say, do I have the Holy Spirit in me? Do you have even the slightest flicker of faith in Jesus? Do you have any hope and any trust that he is your savior? Well, friend, then the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. Jesus is alive. And he's working in you. And he's working through you. All right, so, so we've established that every Christian believer has the Holy Spirit. But then maybe you would say, okay, R.D., I, I get it. I got the Holy Spirit. But I want to see more. I want to see more of the Holy Spirit's work and power in the things that I do and teach. The answer is good. That should be the heart of every Christian. In Ephesians chapter 5, you can turn there if you wish, Ephesians chapter 5, this is Paul's answer to that. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 18. See, Paul's already established that ever since this moment that's coming in Acts chapter 2, the one that Jesus instructed the disciples to wait for, the one where the Holy Spirit is poured out, now every Christian has that Spirit in them, the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 18, he's going to tell you how to see more of it. He's writing to Christians who have the Spirit, and he says, verse 15, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. There are parallel statements in verse 18. Paul's saying, Christian man or woman, do not be ongoingly, incessantly filled, uh, drunk with wine, because that's a waste. But instead, be ongoingly, perpetually filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you do that? 
Will you pursue the Holy Spirit? You live out of that reality that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul's saying in verse 15 here, chart a course with your life that is intentional and marked by discipline. Look carefully then how you walk. Paul's saying don't just go through life oblivious to the fact that the Holy Spirit is in you. Don't waste your life. but instead be filled. Now the example that Paul gives here of a wasted life is perpetual drunkenness. And I think as a a vowed teetotaler of a couple of years, I can say this. Note very closely that what the scripture prohibits is 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 not getting drunk, it's being a drunk. Okay, you gotta be careful with that one. You don't get points for being more conservative than God. Because what Paul is saying, he's saying, if you want to live a life where the Holy Spirit is ongoingly filling you and empowering you and you see God's work in the risen Christ in your life by the Spirit, if you want to see that, don't waste it being drunk all the time. That's what he's saying. Instead, press into the Spirit's work. Christian man or woman here this morning, maybe this is a word for you. Become aware of the Spirit all the time, wherever you are. Paul's saying, live a life that is intentional and disciplined. Look out for how you walk. And what he's saying is, Christian man or woman, you want to see the infilling of the Holy Spirit all the time. Have a keen eye that looks for what God is doing all around you by his Spirit and join him in that. Let me make it really practical. What if you started every day with a simple prayer? And simply acknowledging that Jesus is alive, the Holy Spirit is always at work in the world. What if you said to God every morning, Lord, would you today give me eyes to see where you are at work? God, would you today Bring one person into my path that I could tell about Jesus. You know, friend, if you do that, you're going to redeem the time. You're going to see the Holy Spirit filling you over and over and empowering you to do and to teach. So Jesus tells the disciples to wait. But the instruction from the Lord is no longer wait, it's go. You have the Holy Spirit. He has been given to you. Become aware of that reality. Press into that truth and that promise. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. Foster a deep sense of that. And live out of that reality and that confidence. Begin to see your entire life through that lens. That everything that you do and teach is the risen Christ operating through you by the Holy Spirit.
how you begin to seize opportunities to do and to teach. Maybe you'd look at your life and you'd say, I just, I just don't see it. There are barriers for me. I, I don't know that I could ever go and do and teach by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, I want to propose at least two barriers to you this morning, two things that get in the way. Perhaps the root problem is that you lack conviction. If you don't have this desire to see the Holy Spirit at work through you every day, doing and teaching like the disciples and the apostles in Acts, if you don't have that, perhaps it's because you've forgotten that there is a real heaven, that there is a real hell, and that every day people are dying and going to hell for need of the gospel. That's right. Your friends, your co-workers, the person that you sit beside on the go train. Have you forgotten that if they don't have Jesus, they're going to hell? Well, remembering that will bring you back to this place of coming before God and saying, I want to be ongoingly filled with the Holy Spirit because I need power to do and to teach and to tell people about Christ. Maybe you've forgotten. I think another barrier is that we all want to be liked. Now you're afraid of rejection. Well, I'm going to talk about that one in just a moment. <laughs> but for now, let me just pull this out before we move to our third and final point. If you are a Christian man or woman, you have been commissioned by the risen Jesus and you have been filled and empowered with his Holy Spirit to do his work. All right, look at verse 6 to 8. What does the Spirit cause us to do? Well, the first thing in verses 6 to 7, the Holy Spirit causes us to bring the kingdom of God with us wherever we go. This account of the ongoing work of the alive Jesus throughout all of Acts is all about the coming kingdom of God. We're going to see that and we're going to talk more about it as we move through these chapters. Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry was just that, to bring God's rule and reign to a broken world, to set the whole world back in order. And Jesus brought God's rule to a rebellious world with good news, not with condemnation. You see, Jesus, our Lord and King, would have been well within his rights just to come to the world that he had created, that had rebelled against him, and to come with wrath and judgment against rebels. But instead, he came paying the price to reconcile rebels to himself on the cross. He brought the kingdom and the rule of God. As we then move into Acts, we see this relatively small number of men and women who took that very message of the kingdom of God having come in Jesus as good news. They took it to heart. They were filled with the same spirit as Jesus and they preached that good news of the king and of his kingdom everywhere they went. And they forever changed the world. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. 
That's how the account begins here in Acts chapter 1. Verse 3, verse 6, the kingdom of God. And at Acts chapter 28, verse 31, when Paul is finishing off his ministry, Luke is going to record and say that Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God. So what does this work of the Holy Spirit look like as we live out our lives? It means that we preach and proclaim and do and act as though there is a king and his name is Jesus. And that he's a good and loving king who extends amnesty to rebels who deserve death. That's what the Holy Spirit empowers us to do and to preach. Well, the disciples on that day didn't quite get it. Look at verses 6 to 7. So when they had come together, the disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? See, they knew that it was about the kingdom. They knew it was about God's reign, God setting things right, bringing justice. But they just got it wrong. Verse 7. And Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So the disciples look to Jesus and they say, All right, Jesus, it's awesome. You're alive. Are you going to do it now? Are you going to meet all of our expectations? Are you going to set us free from Roman oppression? Because that was the best that they could imagine. And Jesus is like, well, boys, you got it wrong, but here, hold my wine. Watch this. Right? They were expecting something that was relatively small scale compared to what Jesus is about to do. It's like, you guys aren't going to believe this one. He tells them the timing isn't yours to know and the outcome is going to blow your minds away. Jesus is going to show them by his spirit in the coming chapters that what he's about to do in bringing the kingdom is a fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel chapter 2. That this Holy Spirit is not only going to be poured out on ethnic Israel, but it's going to be poured out indiscriminately on all who believe. Young, old, men and women on all nations. the second thing. The final thing I want us to see is in verse 8. He says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So let's come back to that question that we left dangling a little while ago. How will the rule and reign of King Jesus cover the earth? How is that going to happen? Verse 8. By you. You, Jesus said, will be my witnesses. And it's by you that the risen Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit brings that rule and reign, that good news of God, to the entire world by you. 
That's how the risen Christ lives on, through his body. When saved, born-again, spirit-empowered witnesses, ordinary folks like you and me who have day jobs, when we are made extraordinary by the power of the Holy Spirit, then Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses, and the way it's going to work, the way you're going to bring this message of the kingdom rule and reign of God, the way you're going to bring it is through concentric circles that move out. Okay, if you know the geography of, of the Holy Land, you had Jerusalem, right, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the world. You're going to be witnesses. You're going to do it by the power of the Spirit. It means for you and for me that when we think about the Holy Spirit at work in our lives so that we might do and teach, we conceive of our world in concentric circles too. Start by being a witness to Jesus in your own family. Start there. Start at home. And then move out to your friends. You know, the guys that you golf with. And then your co-workers. And then move out beyond there and begin to spread the good news of Jesus Christ and his rule and his reign that he is alive and that he's a good king. Move it out as witnesses. That's your calling. So you might be thinking this morning, really, R.D., me? Like, it's all well and good, but like, really, me? And the answer from Scripture this morning is yes. Christian, man or woman, you. You think, I, I'm too scared. I don't know what to say. I don't have all the answers I've never been to seminary. I, I just, I don't know Christian apologetics, right? I don't read broadly. I, don't, I just don't know what to say. Well, the risen Jesus Christ does not tell his disciples that they will receive the Spirit to empower them to be high-level university Christian apologists. He says, but to be witnesses. And you can do that. No matter who you are this morning, if you're a Christian man or woman, the Holy Spirit of God empowers you to bear witness to Jesus. It sounds as simple as this. My life used to be like this. It's now like this. And it's because of Jesus. That's all you have to do. Bear witness to him. I mentioned a moment ago that sometimes there are barriers to us doing that, and certainly one of them might be a lack of conviction, but I think the other one is uh, that we all want to be liked, you know? We don't want to be the person that, you know, belches at the cocktail party or whatever, right, and ruins the mood by bringing up Jesus. Just this past week, Monica helped me with my sermon prep inadvertently she was hanging out with her friends socially these are friends that she's known for decades and she in that context bore witness to Jesus in particular the lordship of Jesus in particular around ethical issues I'll give you three guesses 
And she was met with outright hostility. For two, almost three hours, she was socially berated. She eventually said, I need to go and came home in tears. And my answer to her was, well done. You see, it's not your responsibility to control the outcome. It's merely your responsibility to be faithful, to bear witness to Christ. It's just obedience. That's all God wants. Your Lord Jesus told you, go and be my witnesses. He's given you the Holy Spirit to carry out the task. Do it. Just be his witnesses. Go and tell people, there is a Lord, and this is what he did and taught. And if you're met with hostility, Jesus would say to you in Matthew chapter 5 that you're blessed. Blessed are you when you're reviled for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus would say, you're blessed any time that you're reviled or persecuted for my sake. Just go and be my witnesses and watch the Holy Spirit at work. You don't have to control the outcome. You just have to be faithful. Well, you might look at that and think, that's a daunting task, R.D., and isn't it a losing battle anyway? When I look at the world around me, it appears like darkness is overtaking, especially in the West. It's a scary thing to be a witness to Jesus. I was talking with a friend recently who said that, um, he said, you know, in today's world where we are inundated with 24-7 messaging of a secular, even satanic nature, how can we as a church ever hope to persuade people when all we get is at best one hour on a Sunday? And my answer to him was this. If witnessing to Jesus was a numbers game, we would lose for sure. Because we don't have the, the attention that the world has. But the effectiveness of your witness is not about how much time you get. It's about the power of the word of God. And Jesus said it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's what it says in Hebrews. That wasn't Jesus. So it's not about how much time you have to witness. It's also about the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me conclude that story about Monica's bearing witness. So she met with these two friends. She bore witness to them about Jesus, met with hostility. She came home in tears. I encouraged her and prayed with her. A couple of days goes by. And one of those friends texted her and said, hey, Monica, when you said this, what exactly did you mean? Think about that. You see, all Monica had to do was bear witness. And then the Holy Spirit was at work, softening her heart, wooing her to Christ, stripping down the barriers and revealing sin and salvation to her. When she was all alone in those quiet moments, the Holy Spirit was after her. Not for one hour on Sunday, 
24 hours a day, seven days a week. For 24 hours for those three-day period, she was thinking because the Holy Spirit was at work in her because my wife bore witness to Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not effective because we are clever or, or take a lot of time like the world does with their messaging. It's not just that God only works for one hour on Sundays. When we simply bear witness to the risen Christ, the Holy Spirit's at work all the time. And you trust him with the outcome. I think that's why Jesus said that um, the kingdom of God is like a little bit of leaven that's worked into a lump. Right? You think about a gigantic lump of dough. If you put just a little bit of leaven in it, in an invisible way and miraculous way, it multiplies and multiplies and multiplies till it takes over the entire lump. Friends, the task may seem daunting. It may seem like darkness is a massive lump. But we are called and empowered by the risen Christ in the Spirit to simply bear witness to the kingdom of God like a little bit of leaven that's working all the time even when we don't see it. Jesus is alive. His spirit is at work in and through you. You are his witnesses. So friends, this week, witness with boldness. Trust the Lord with the outcome, even and especially when you can't see the results. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you not only save us and rescue us from hell, but that you call us and commission us and empower us by your Holy Spirit to be your witnesses. Lord, would you even this morning so convince our hearts of these deep truths, grant us deep conviction that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Give us a new zeal in being your witnesses to tell men and women that they must be saved, they must be born again. And tell them about Jesus. And sustain and strengthen us at moments of discouragement with the image of the leaven in a, in a lump of dough. It's working even, your Holy Spirit's at work even when we don't see it. We commit all these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.